Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 57, if I'm not mistaken. Kyle, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I am, uh, we've had a couple weeks off, so I'm actually kind of looking forward to hashing out some current events here. Same here. It's, uh, it's uh, good to be back. What stands out to you? Um, well, I just want to say that uh, you thought Curry, well, I don't know what you thought Curry was going to do, but you seem to think that he was not going to be able to hold his own. Um, I think it was a massively impressive display for the guy's first time on the golf course as a professional or with the professionals. Yes. Uh, I think you overstated what I said. <laughs> However, uh, I want to, I could talk about this at length. Um, so I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. I think we both agreed something around like a couple of 76s, right? Something along those lines, yeah. So a couple of 74s bests us a little bit, mm-hmm. kind of calls out us a little bit. Uh, a back-to-back 74s in a professional golf tournament is undeniably extremely impressive for someone that maybe plays 30 to 40 rounds a year, which is from all the coverage I've seen, that seems to be the case. Uh, it could be more than that. He could get in a lot more practice than that, which I actually can see um, that there's a lot of ways to practice golf now, and I would imagine that he can get a lot of practice in. Uh, at any rate, playing in a tournament is a completely different ball game. Anyone that's ever done it at any level can tell you that it is a completely different experience than playing with your friends. And Curry even said that. And I really appreciated how he talked about the experience. Of he, I found him to be really humble about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, earnestly and authentically humble. Uh, talking about how like he couldn't feel his limbs on the first tee. Like, that's a thing, and that's that's real, and it's really hard to hit a golf ball when you like, can't feel those limbs. Uh, yeah, but you hit so it into a cup, man. Yeah, first, for his first shot pretty badly. And it landed uh, uh, in a cart in a cup, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then he had to drop on a golf on a, um, a golf path or uh, and then get another rolling, which I can't imagine how humiliating that was on his first hole ever. Uh, but he handled it well and came back and shot 74, which is pretty incredible. Um, before I throw shade on it, do you have any other thoughts on the the feet of it? I just think the one thing that I thought was really interesting from my perspective is he talked about um, how exhausting the practice rounds were and that yeah. he had no idea how much preparation went into the game. Like yeah. these guys that are thinking through everything, every single shot. Um, which I think is just – it's one of those things that those of us that are casual fans don't think about is how much thought before anybody even steps on the course goes into this stuff. Right. I do – I will That's- just say that makes me think that given a better chance to prepare, Curry does even better on this golf course. But anyway, uh, you go ahead and throw your shade now, Kyle. I know you're dying to. <laughs> Well, okay. The first thing in response to what you said, uh, so I've been to several professional golf tournaments, and uh, at one point I was at the Colonial in Columbus, 
and I followed Steve Stricker for about 15 holes because I love Steve Stricker. And it was during a practice round. And by the end of, I picked him up on like four or five and I, or yeah, three or four. And I followed him the rest of the round. It, I was overwhelmed with the extent to which Steve Stricker was simply at the office. Hmm. Like he, he was just at work. He did not have fun playing that practice round. <laughs> like on a, on a Tuesday outside of Columbus, on a court, he played five times, half hours to play 15, probably 500 putts, 200 chips. Uh, I mean, it, it was just like he wasn't doing anything fun or cool. He was just at work. Uh, hmm. And I think he finished like T27 at that tournament. And it just struck me like so overwhelmingly, like these, these guys are just workers. Like they're not like them. The vast majority of them are just doing a job, um, which I think gives credence to Steph's comments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I agree with you. I think if he did have time, he could be a professional golfer. I think he proved that. Um, However, I think my shade comes from a couple perspectives. I think what is amazing about this is that this is one of the best basketball players ever doing this. Uh, it's not that some good athlete, a couple of 74s. Um, it's just goal of it that makes it more than what it is. And so that segues into my thought that I think golf is about privilege more than it is anything else. Hmm. Uh, and I think you have to acknowledge that Stephen Curry had access to the game of golf from a very young age mm -hmm. and played from age three to 18 competitively and played almost every day with his father growing up. Uh, and so I think you have to bring in privilege into any golfing conversation about a feat that occurred. Uh, secondly, he only beat three people. Uh, so 147 people beat him. Uh, again, they're professional golfers and that's their life and that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, but at any rate, he only beat three people. Um, so I think that that needs to be thrown in just to the conversation. Uh, and I think that's, yeah i was just saying other athletes i think in other sports if they had access to the game could do what he did mm -hmm. it's just what makes it a spectacle is that he is one of the best basketball players ever agreed and i you know i kind of stand by my point that i think his unique muscle memory would make him better than most other professional athletes. But I don't think, um, I don't think that there are, uh, that if we gave LeBron access to that in the way that some of these other people have had access, that it, that he couldn't do that. Um, but I do Agreed. think, I do think that there are some unique things that make it a little bit different. Um, I agree. I agree with that totally. Yeah. Well, what uh, what do you think about Neymar going to PSG, man? Speaking of 
stars going crazy. Yeah, it honestly didn't surprise me at all. Uh, I've never been convinced that he belongs at Barcelona. Uh, when he first went there, I thought Barcelona didn't appeal to his style of play. But when you're as good as Neymar, you only have a few choices, I think, on what clubs to go to. Uh, and I think he couldn't pass up an opportunity with the money that Barcelona was offering him and to play with Messi, I think, was uh, you just can't pass that up. However, I think he thinks of himself as a Messi. Mm. And you can't be another Messi if you're on the same team as Messi because Messi's going to prove that he's better than you. Uh, but I also think to some extent that Messi is better at a Barcelona style of play than Neymar is. Hmm. And so I think a lot of it for me comes down to like stylistic stuff. I think it comes down to ego and perception of self a lot. And then, I mean, this is <laughs> it, the money, right? Like, I mean, yeah, that's the, the money. The money is just freaking insane. I I am not at all surprised to see him move, but yeah. 222 million euros is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard to fathom. And that's not even considering his wages, which are going to be astronomical. Exactly. Um, I don't, it's when, what, what shatters it all is, of course, that they're going to find some way to still qualify for the financial fair play uh, stuff, yep. even though they're doing this. There's so many loopholes to get into that club. I feel like that's not very difficult to do at this point in time. No. <laughs> I, I like, I mean, as a fan though, I think it'll be kind of exciting. I, I'm i a fan of the French teams being good. So I like that. I like this yeah, move. Yeah. Um, France is just, uh, I think it's when France has good soccer teams, the world is better for it in some ways. I don't know why. That's the case, but uh, I do believe that. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think to add a, a fifth country into the European club world, uh, and mm -hmm. entirely legitimate. I mean, PSG is already pretty legitimate, um, but this makes them more legitimate. And so I, I think that'll be fun. Um, although I, I would struggle to name three other, more than three other players for PSG right now. That is, this is one of the things that's hard with soccer is just how much people change teams. Um, it, it's become rather ridiculous. And yeah. that, uh, you know, I listened to or watched the highlights from Arsenal winning the champion shield for the third time in four years, which hooray. Um, <laughs> um, and there's like four or five guys playing that I'm like, who are these folks? Um, and like, right. I know their names because I'm deep into it, but not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not people that if you are casual, follow, follow casually, you're going to know that's where they are. Right. Did you hear Zat, um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic comments on Neymar? <laughs> he was saying how he like respects what Neymar is doing and he thinks Neymar is following in Zlatan his own footsteps in that he's trying to conquer countries. Hmm. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, 
Messi is probably the best ever. Ronaldo is probably right behind him. He's like, but neither of them have conquered countries like I have. <laughs> I like, what the hell are you talking about, dude? <laughs> that guy, man. Yeah. It's either yeah. got to be an act or there's something wrong with the man. Yeah, I, I honestly think that he's just pretty weird. <laughs> I don't think it's that much of an act. I think he really believes that so about either, right? It's so consistent that you know, this yeah. is not this is not the Kyrie flat earth statement. This is something different entirely. Yeah. Conquering continents. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of continents, what do you make of the NBA in Africa? It's exciting, man. I, you know, we talked about this. I think this was my, I think, piece of maybe even the last time we talked was just that I enjoy these things. Um, and, you know, it's not just Africa. It's it's KD in India as well, which I think uh, yeah. is perhaps even more exciting to me than the NBA in Africa. Yeah. Um, so I, it's – I think the potential for basketball and the future of basketball is nowhere but up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, you know, I've not thought about this before, but I wonder if part of the potential for basketball and part of the reason that, say, soccer has uh, grown so far is that you can do it um, by yourself or with just one other person. Mm-hmm. Like soccer, you can do all these tricks or play in the alley by your, with just another person. Basketball, you can play one-on-one. And these other sports, it's really hard to do that with it doesn't translate cricket and baseball and football and uh, a lot of these other sports don't translate down to that one-on-one level or just a few right. people level yeah yeah it, it has me thinking about like what it would look like if there was from the continent of africa a viewership that numbered like you know 300 million like what what that would do to the structure of the NBA, the TV contracts, the player contracts, the ownership models. Uh, I just start thinking about how like the labor issues would play out. And so with the contracts we're seeing right now that seem just so insane that if you throw an Asian and an African market on top of it, like, I mean, I, I, I don't know what it would be like if a player like, you know, signs a billion dollar contract, mm-hmm. like one individual getting paid that much, um, you know, just to play the game of basketball. Like I, I, I wonder what, what consequences mm-hmm. I would have. Be, and I wonder about them because I think it's impossible to like predict. I don't, I don't think any of us know what that would look like. Well, I don't think any of us know where that explosive growth is going to happen yet. I think, you know, there's an equally high chance that it's going to happen in China, India, Europe, or Africa, or even South America at this point. But I think that we're all expecting it to just blow up at some point soon. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be this next round. I mean, I think we're in a round when like these these contracts we're seeing right now will play out for the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the next 10 to 15, maybe 20 years, we're going to see the next phase. And I think the next phase is going to be on an exponential curve. Uh, I, I think we'll see something alarming, you know. 
I have to say that there's a part of me that really appreciates the fact that um, basketball contracts are much better than football contracts, especially at this point, Um, because I think it pushes all the best athletes in the direction of where they should be going, um, which can only be a positive thing, I think, in the long run. Yeah, I agree. But I, I also wanted to mention I've appreciated how much the players seem, at least in public, to enjoy being there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think oftentimes you see, especially soccer players, making these world tours. And not for a second do I believe that they're excited to be doing what they're doing. Uh, but these NBA players that are in Africa and Asia this summer, like, I, I kind of believe them that they're – I. I I think they would rather be at home with their families and just relaxing. Um, but I, I think they they are presenting themselves in the league in a way that is kind of believable to, as much as it could be. Hmm. Um, so I'm somewhat convinced by it. I can see that. Uh, and I think yeah. a part of it, I do wonder, you know, the NBA has done such a good job from the for a long time about the uh, – uh, like service stuff. So going to boys and girls clubs and things like that. And so I wonder if in some ways they're, m- they're much better at like doing these kinds of things where they take players somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That very well could be. Yeah. I know they do a lot of training with rookies on this type of stuff. Um, and those mm-hmm. guys that are successful are so good at forming their brands that mm-hmm. they probably get a lot of training with their team on this. Hmm. Well, uh, from a very international perspective, I want to take it back to a very American perspective and talk about the L.A. Dodgers. Um, yeah, what's up with the Dodgers right now? Uh, well, if I'm not mistaken, like best 50-game record since 1912 or something along those lines. Yeah, um, they're on an absolute tear. And what's interesting to me is uh, I look at their roster – and maybe this is because I don't follow baseball, but there's very few names on there that mean anything to me. Yeah. You know, like the Cubs kind of blew up, and those guys had been around for a year or two. I feel like these, a lot of these Dodgers guys weren't around even last year. Yeah, they have put together an absolute perfect assemblage of, like, what it takes to win Major League Baseball games. Um <laughs> I think part of it is, uh, I mean, I've said this before on here, that it's, I mean, if you, if you have five good pitchers and a couple middle relief guys that are also good, like, that's it. You're done. <laughs> like, you don't have that much to do outside of that. Like, if you have eight guys that are hitting two, 240 or better, you're going to be, not only are you going to be in the playoffs, but you're going to be the lead in the playoffs. Hmm. Um, so in that way they just had four or five pitchers hit right at the right time Um, but secondly I I think they've kind of created that thing where they got like the baseball culture thing happening Mm -hmm. their players have have bought into whatever's happening and so they're kind of all in but um, and they also just signed what's his name this week you don't Um, yeah, you Darvish. So they just added one of the best starting pitchers in the game to an yeah. already elite staff. So um, it's also yeah. interesting to kind of contrast it with 
the Cubs kind of falling apart. Yeah. Um, so as, especially from this perspective of like uh, they had it all last year and now they don't have it at all. And what happened? Yeah. They're, they're still not completely figuring it out, except that they're still first in the central, but um, I think they're only like four or five games over 500. Um, would you compare that with the Dodgers that are like 25 games over 500? It does. Uh, it's got to give you hope, like as a Reds fan, to know that like this turning around can happen so quickly. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, when was the last time I experienced something like this? I was seven years old, 1990. I mean, we were, we were great. We went wire to wire. Like, and no, I don't. I mean, that was 20 years ago. I've had 20 losing seasons in a row, except for 95 when we were in first place and the strike happened. Like, no. And we're in last place in the central right now. Like, 20 games under 500. No, I don't have hope for my Reds. <laughs> This is uh, – I'm looking at your depth chart right now. Man, oh, God. It's just That's embarrassing. a depressing thing to look at, yeah. <laughs> I know two of, the, two of the players. I know Joey Votto and Billy Hamilton, but that's it. Yep. I don't, I don't know any of these pitchers. They can't be any good. They are not, which is why we are – what are we right now? 45 and 60-something, 65, 45 and 66. Scooter Jeanette is starting at second base. Uh, there you go. <laughs> oh, my. I'm sorry, yeah, bud. We're not good. No, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Joey Vada, though, is having another, like, MVP like career or year. He, you know, um, I don't think he's ever flashy enough. Although he's got 30 home runs this year. I had no idea. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like no one pays attention. Even the year he won the MVP, I feel like most people were like, wait, who's Joey Votto? Um, but no, he's, he's killing it. I mean. And he's got he, no roster support, which makes it even more amazing. Yeah, he, he's incredible. I, I mean, he's one of the top ten players in Major League Baseball. Yeah, hitting, he, he's incredible. Hitting 81 RBIs, 30 home runs with no support in the lineup whatsoever. Yep. What's his um, – I might look him up real quick, but what are some of his finer statistics? I'm sure it is. Batting 314. Um, OP, I never know how to understand OPS numbers, but um, I think that's a good OPS number. <laughs> 500, maybe 500 something. Uh, oh, his on base percentage is 438, but his OPS, which is a slugging versus on base percentage. Oh, he's 1043, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. So he's still great. That's what's interesting is he signed this 10-year massive deal. I think he's just going to hang around and 
write it out. He doesn't seem unhappy. Yeah, you don't hear him talking. That's because you don't hear anything about the Reds. <laughs> Fair enough. Do, do, in Cincinnati, do they talk about it? Yeah. Well, me and my, like, four friends, I think we might be, like, the only four. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, what else you got? Um, well, you mentioned CTE. That's clearly a big thing at the moment, especially with Tom Brady being Tom Brady about it. Yeah, and we haven't talked about the New York Times study that came – or not the New York Times study, but they were the first ones to publish the study. Yeah, I mean, just staggering numbers of that it's pretty much inevitable for these players. Yeah, 110 of 111 brains that were tested had CTE. Yeah. There's got to be, you know, I don't know what you think, but for me, I think before the league really takes this seriously, um, we're going to have to figure out more what the CTE means. Um it's kind of like it reminds me of some of these other diseases where it can simply essentially manifest in any way that you right. can imagine. Uh, and so until the like doctors are able to go to the league and say, Hey, you know, all of your players are something other than depressed because clearly the MFL doesn't care about depression. Um, right. uh, then it's not going to do anything. No, I, I don't think in any way whatsoever are we at all close to something that could resemble like a lawsuit or something like that against the NFL. Mm-mm. I don't think there's a legal precedent anywhere nearby, and I still think it's going to be several years based on the rate at which the scientific research has happened so far since we kind of started playing it, paying attention to this. But, um, And I think even the scientists that are at the forefront of the CTE research are very upfront about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, They actually seem to be even pushing back the, you know, the NPRs and the New York times that were so excited to publish this study. Mm -hmm. Saying They're all, their comments were like, yes, that is true. The question you just asked me. However, (laughs) as a scientist, I am like, have a responsibility to say that this is nowhere near something we would call like a theory. We're still dealing with hypothesis at this point. Um, and I agree with you that I think it's going to have to come down to like very substantiated symptoms that are mm-hmm. scientifically proven. But I think the NFL's just got to be so worried because they know it's coming. Every, every bit of research they do uncovers more and more to be current concerned about. And I don't think the NFL can just assume it's going to go away at this point. Yeah. And I think the most interesting part of the story is that they pulled the last $18 million of their promised 38 million to researching this and in their defense. They had already included an option to not pay this money. And they have come out and said that, it's not that they're not going to pay. It's just that they're going to redistribute it elsewhere. So on like the very front page of that, it's like, okay, you can't disagree with that, but it's also so obvious. Mm-hmm. Like, of course they don't want to keep paying these scientists that came out with this <laughs> information, but I don't think any of their hardcore fan base is too worried about it. 
yeah, I don't think so either. But, uh, uh, you know, the more it pushes the casual fan away, the less growth you have. And I think that's where the issue comes into play. Yeah, I agree. What did you make of Tom Brady's comments that when he was asked about, did he have a concussion last year? He responded, it's none of your business. Um. A, I just don't care what Tom Brady has to say most of the time. Uh, yeah. But B, uh, he clearly did, or else he wouldn't have said anything. Um, he could have just said no. He could have just said no. Um, so it's just, I don't understand it at all. But then I just, the more the more we hear about the football world, the less interested I become. Yeah, same here. Uh, and it's getting to the, back to that time of year again where it's going to be really hard not to be a football fan, but uh, I stand firm in that decision. I do too. <laughs> yep. Oh my. I'm not playing college pick em this year. I haven't told my friends. Uh-oh, man. You know, take some heat. Yep, I'm definitely going to. They're going to blame it on on your lady friend. um other absurd things the ball family oh my goodness um it's it's an interesting thing um one of my favorite podcasts is a college basketball podcast that cbs sports does um it's really interesting because they've been doing a lot of you know they get a lot of people that say why do you report on the ball family and it's been really fascinating because they've pushed back on this. Unlike I think most news, ESPN is never going to talk, tell you why they keep reporting on the stories. Uh, but they're very clear. Like we write these because a, everyone in the college basketball world is talking about it, but B people read it and their numbers are way higher than their normal numbers uh, mm-hmm. of reading. And it's, I don't know what to make of it. Um, and it's interesting, too, because they talk some about how um, really a lot of what they've done, the dad's done, LeVar has not been bad stuff. Like, his kids are intelligent. They get good grades in school. They participate. They're respectful. Uh, and yet their dad is a complete jerk a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, and so how do you kind of counterbalance these things in some ways? And. You know, then you add the whole sexist thing on top of it, and it's a whole new powder keg of, of things. Right. Did you read Jay Billis's article? I did not, no. What did he have to say? So he came out really hard, and he's been really quiet on the, var- or on the ball family at large. Uh, and he finally came out and said that this is we, – we can't allow this anymore. Like, uh, it's – he he always said, you know, like this was kind of what we said of that. This is just the Kardashian paradigm, hmm. and that's exactly what he's doing. But he's saying that um, the the father crossed the line when he he's told two women to stay in their lane, uh, and he's gotten his team disqualified from two AAU tournaments. That it's it's crossed the line then that it's he's disrespecting the game so to speak and that it's not permissible anymore furthermore the misogyny is 
not permissible either. So it's not funny anymore. No, and I guess, you know, my only pushback on that would be to say, I don't, this argument of disrespecting the game is not one that I like very much. Um, I think it's got this elitist uh, and often racist undertones to it. Um, So I want to steer clear of that. But they've been consistently disrespectful to people associated with the game. uh, And that I think I have no problem with calling them out for. Right. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I will misogyny, obviously. Yeah, and I will say that there's this uh, part of me that hopes that this puts an end to uh, AAU basketball as we understand it, um, but I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't think it is either, but that that whole AAU world is so foreign to me still. As much as I like somewhat pay attention to it, it's still like I, like, I don't know what's going on there. I will say that they were, these guys on this podcast were saying that uh, perhaps the most ridiculous thing about this Zion versus um, the Ball family game yeah. uh, was that Zion's head coach, head AAU coach, coached almost the entire game while holding his sleeping son, who's wow. like a very small child. Uh, and they were just saying this is the most AAU thing they've seen in a long time. <laughs> Even that qualifier to call something the most AAU thing. (laughs) That's unnerving. Well, um, do you want to share about our new new thing we're doing here? Go for it. You got it. Okay. Well, so we, uh, because we have massive egos and we're white dudes, um, we've decided that we need to start a book club. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, and uh, because we are left-leaning white dudes, we've decided we're going to read a book that comes from India written by a person of color. Um, but we would invite you all to join us in a reading of Selection Day by Aravind Adiga, um, who is an Indian author, and the book is about the selection of the cricket team for a community in India and all that goes into that, including a number of family issues of what happens to families in the modern day Mumbai. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of excited to read it and, and dig into it. I've read some of his other stuff and have really enjoyed it. So uh, I think in maybe three weeks we'll aim to, to share our thoughts on it uh, and we'll welcome any of you to share your thoughts as well. I love this idea. <laughs> How many readers do you think we'll get? Um, uh, let's aim for five. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, I will say that our uh, when we because we haven't done a podcast in a couple of weeks, our s- subscription numbers are down. So hopefully they'll bounce back up after this. <laughs> this is the ticket. This is what'll do it. <laughs> this will get us into that Indian market that we've been trying to crack into. Exactly. (laughs) Well, good deal. But uh, that's, uh, I'll read you that a slate calls it ferociously brilliant and the Chicago Tribune calls it comical and searing. So, I mean, what's not to like about that? Yeah, we'll take that. Thanks, Slate. (laughs) Um, 
but uh, on an, on the cricket world, uh, what's going on these days? So I reported a couple weeks ago that um, the Australian cricket world was uh, kind of in turmoil because they're their national team players, both men and women, uh, were essentially going on a strike and saying they weren't going to play until there was uh, an established policy for revenue sharing. And in very Australian fashion, they worked it out in like two weeks, um, <laughs> which is kind of anticlimactic as far as a sports story is concerned. But uh, it's worth commenting on. Um, Probably first and foremost is that the Ashes tournament between Australia and England is going to happen now, <laughs> uh, which the, the far-reaching problem with this strike was that the Ashes might not happen, but it is going to happen now, so everyone can calm down about that. Um, but a couple other things stand out about it. One is that the revenue sharing is going to be significant. So the men are going to see um, about a 50% increase in revenue sharing. Wow. And the women are going to see a 200% increase in revenue wow. sharing. Mm -hmm. hmm. Which, is, even for the women, though, still, like, that almost misstates it. Like, that's not saying, like, that everything's equal now. Um, but still, it's a, it's a massive increase. And especially coming off the back of such an exciting women's tournament that we saw. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, what stands out to me most is the power of unions. <laughs> and, you know, and obviously in the United States right now, we, I feel like, the younger generation has no idea what a union is and what it stands for and what it's capable of. Uh, but this is just a resounding case of the power of unions in that there was an injustice and by this, it, I want to say the simple act of organizing, but it's actually really complex and difficult to organize. But uh, by the act of organizing, the injustice for the most part was righted in this case. And it only took a couple of weeks of people agreeing that, oh yeah, like cricket is good for Australia and we need our best cricketers to feel valued uh, <laughs> and to be rightfully valued. And then once that comes to fruition, everyone's like, oh yeah, this is still great. Like <laughs> it's, it's still moving and it's still going to work. So it's kind of a success story, I think. It is interesting, and I kind of uh, want to counterpose that with the story of the NBA Players Association, where I think there's a strong argument to be made at this point that they totally screwed up in their last negotiations, uh, and there are going to be a lot of people that pay the price for that. Yeah, see, that's a, that's a whole different thing when you've got, like, your union represented by some of the richest people in the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's problematic. You like there's there's all these things like probably 
Chris Paul as one of the best players in the NBA should not be the one negotiating on behalf of the entire Players Association. Exactly. It should be the guy that's a role player and may not have a contract next season. Yeah. You know, JaVale McGee should be uh, the lead negotiator for the NBA. <laughs> I would love to sit on sit in on those hearings of JaVale McGee arguing for the case of the players. <laughs> oh my but that's great i i will just say also that i think it's funny that the ashes play such a big role in this uh, yeah. because the ashes in some way are the embodiment of old cricket uh, exactly and don't matter nearly as much as they used to these days that that's not where cricket really lives anymore yeah i agree and i i think it says something too about like the cricket journalism that I'm exposed to is journalism that would still care about the ashes. Mm. When in reality, probably the majority of the cricketing world doesn't really care that much about the ashes. Mm-hmm. But what's going on inside Clinton? So we're in this time now between the tour of Poland or excuse me, between the tour of France and the Vuelta España. Uh, so it's kind of a fun time. There's a couple of fun races. The Tour of Poland just finished, and that's a fun one. Uh, these Often these one-week tours have some really interesting things go down, and that was a uh, – I have to say that their inventiveness was quite good. So that's happening. Transfer season is happening. So a lot of guys changing teams, which is always interesting because they have short contracts. A lot of guys have one- or two-year contracts. So teams are constantly flipping upside down and changing, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, but then the two biggest pieces of news this week are a Contador is retiring after the Vuelta a España, which um, he it's time for him to go. But the cycling world will miss him. There is no doubt about that. Um, yeah, they need more cyclists like him. Um, and then in the world of people that we don't need more cyclists like Lance Armstrong, who uh, for those of you that don't know has a lifetime ban from the sport. Uh, well, there's a new race that's taking the place of the USA Pro Challenge called the Colorado Classic that has invited Lance to be like the a sanctioned podcast on the route of the Colorado Classic. And it's now uh, threatening, uh, essentially, they've been told they have to get rid of him or else they're going to lose their accreditation from all of the cycling bodies. Wow. Uh, which is fascinating. Apparently, he... Uh, wanted to participate in uh, a very amateur ride a while ago, but because it was on the USA cycling calendar, he was not allowed to even participate in a, in a grand fondo, which is essentially just riding around for fun. So as I understood it, his podcast of the Tour de France was like the guilty pleasure of a lot of cycling fans. I, it was really well done. I really enjoyed it, uh, which – uh, I'm not a Lance hater like a lot of people are, um, but it's it's just a fascinating thing that, um, uh, A, uh, maybe we need to get Lance on the podcast. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like he's looking for work. <laughs> Sounds like uh, he's managed to almost rehab his image with, you know, uh, an hour recorded in a camper van uh, a couple of times a week. Oh. 
Yeah. I read an article this week about how he has successfully revamped himself. So the problem with that is that um, there's a bunch of stuff in the courts that could essentially wind up with him owing people like $120 million. Um, so uh, I think that, yes, he may have revamped his image to some degree. Um, yeah. There's still a lot of problems that exist in the world of Lance Armstrong. Yeah. So. Are you going to still do his podcast even though they aren't going to sanction it? Well, st- nothing has been decided yet, so it's still all up in the air. The Colorado Classic is like, what does our legal counsel say about this? So almost okay. assuredly he will do something, but it'll have to be non-sanctioned. Um, right. So it's a, it's a, it really is an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, you want to, you want to talk about some euphemisms? Let's do it. So this week we're going to talk about the kind of euphemism in sports. And so the one that kind of got me interested in this topic when I texted you, Kyle, was um, I was listening to some guys talk about Jordan Spieth, uh, and they they called him a class act about six times uh, in the in the thing that I was listening to. And I uh, the more they kept saying it, the more it just felt like coded language to me. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I have in my notes next to a class act in quotes, I said class act equals a 1957 white guy. <laughs> but it's it's even not quite like um, this is the same media that ate up that Jordan uh, ball tapped his caddy on TV. Um, right. Like that's... I don't know if that was totally acceptable, but this, these people, once you're a class act, you're willing to gloss over everything. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're willing to be part and parcel to something like the military industrial complex and everyone's just going to be like, Oh yeah, that's cool. Like you, you got it. Yeah. Like set up these massive, like multinational corporations that are going to like rape and pillage the world. Like that's a <laughs> class act. As long as you do it with a gray suit and a black tie and a white shirt on, like, yep, you're you're you're, you're right in the flow. Uh, I I think it is important to comment on how much the media has a role in this, and I am not one that loves to hate on the media. That's not my jam. Um, I mean, I do largely dislike the media, but I think they do the best they can most of the time. I will say that this is one of those situations, and I think. I mentioned the Slate podcast before I got on air, and they talked about uh, Federer, who I know is one of your buddies, um, and how yep. he's so like soft-spoken and stuff when he gets off the court, um, but he's always cussing at himself on the court and mad at himself, um, and yet the commentators always say, oh, a rare show of emotion from Federer. Like, no, yeah. it's not. It's just that in your interactions with him, he's not emotional but he is all the time when he's on the court and so just how how someone's interaction with the media then flavors everything that we see and how we perceive those people well yeah and then you take like someone like Andre Agassi who was revolutionary for the tennis world and he wasn't even that big a deal you know 
the 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 narrowness of their perspective is like uh so narrow that that's what's alarming yeah um so yeah when i hear class act i i think of like a a white guy in a a gray suit or someone like it like you could talk they talk about you know you could talk about NBA, uh, you know, Jason Tatum or Ben Simmons and say, those guys are class acts, which means essentially that they're non-threatening African-American yeah. folks. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're not going to push against David Stern like Alan Iverson did. <laughs> oh. um, the other one I put in that category is playing the game the right way. Mm-hmm. What do you think of when you hear that phrase? Well, so this kind of goes back to my comment earlier about why I want to steer clear of the respecting the game kind of comments. Um, that yeah. I think that they're, they tend to be very elitist. Um, and, you know, like I have my, you know, I've talked about my kind of dislike of LeBron because I don't like the way he plays basketball. But I would never yeah. sit here and tell you that everyone should play basketball uh, like, um, you know, like no one's coming to mind at the moment, but, um, you know, like an Andre Miller, but yeah, uh, that's, that's, uh, at the same time, like I do appreciate that, but I can't, I'm not the arbiter of that. Uh, and no one is the arbiter of what, and this is part of why we hate the unwritten rules of baseball, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah, the the absurdity is both really deep and right on the surface. Mm-hmm. It's like, where are you getting this from? And also, like, why are you still holding this thing to where you don't even know where you get it from? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, it's been passed down, but not by anything healthy. It also makes me think about the NFL changing the ruling on end zone celebrations this year. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Are they now allowing end zone celebrations? Yeah, they, they've loosened up on it a whole bunch, I think. Um, which I think plays right into the idea of like, you know, the the gentry and the the upper brass of the NFL has been cracking down on end zone celebrations for the last several years. But I think even finally they've realized that, oh, our fan base is not – all the class acts that we thought they were (laughs) Um, is defined by them. That's not me using Mm -hmm. class act. It's them using class act. Cricket has this too. They use the term spirit of cricket, Mm. uh, which is very easily translated to play like the British Lords want you to play the game. Yeah. No fast bowling, no, um, no kind of tricky business. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's all of the spirit of cricket. He's a class act. He plays within the spirit of cricket. <laughs> it's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Well, uh, hit me with another one of yours. Uh, let's see. I've got, um, I always have a problem with calling an athlete clutch. Hmm. One, I, I have read articles uh, from the Sabermetric folks that say that 
clutch is way overstated that there's not a lot of metric data to back up clutch. Um, and even when there is, it is like very minimal. And so more it's about like selective memory. So when you think about like Michael Jordan taking last second shot or making last second shots, it's because the highlight reels show Michael Jordan making like mm -hmm. four or five of his most famous last second shots. When in reality, he made about 50% of them, uh, <laughs> which is pretty good. But if, if you gave any great basketball player a chance to take every single last shot of a the game, they're probably going to make 50% of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but because Jordan was on a great team and because he was great and because they were in that situation enough, we have this kind of selective memory of clutchness of Michael Jordan. Uh, and so I think it's often used as a pejorative to all the players that aren't mentioned within a clutch conversation. Hmm. Um, and it's not that big a deal. It's not that significant. But I think it is significant when uh, a lot of players that believe in clutch and believe that it's actually a thing. Um, and I, I'm thinking more of like amateurs, um, athletes, uh, and I think of, you know, um, teenagers playing high school sports and, you know, they don't get 86 games a year like Michael Jordan did. You know, they might get like one or two at bats in their like entire high school career of baseball. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they miss one or two of them or both of them, then like they go through the rest of their life thinking that they're like not a clutch person. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Always like that's not fair to put that on some kid that's playing a game, um, but it's it's a resounding uh, sentiment that exists in sports that to be like a, a true athlete or a true competitor you got to be clutch, which the mathematics just kind of deconstruct that quite easily, um, and that's probably not fair, especially to put on amateur young kid athletes. I agree with all of that. I think I would push back a little bit and say that I do think, you know, I've been listening to too much, uh, in all honesty, talk about Kyrie Irving. Um, mm -hmm. Just because the more I've heard talk about him, the more I want him to go somewhere and succeed, uh, the more I like that he wanted out of Cleveland. Um, but they t there's been a lot of talk about how he's one of the few people that when the time comes, he can get you a bucket. Um, and so I don't necessarily want to call him clutch, but I do think that there's a skill, there are certain skill sets that make you, you know, Kevin Durant will always be able to get a good look when he wants a good look. Kyrie yeah. will always be able to get to the basket. LeBron will always be able to muscle his way through the lane. Um, yeah. You know, there are these skill sets that make a player um, potentially better in clutch time. Um, that doesn't make them clutch. It just means that their skill set is, is superior in some ways. So I do want to say that that exists. And I do think that there's also, you know, to go to take England soccer, for example, that it, they are the definition of not clutch, right? They have <laughs> how many penalties? Um, yeah. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, that makes them clutch or not clutch. I don't like that term kind of like you don't. Uh, but I do think that there's a mindset that when England players get into a penalty shootout, it is so in their heads that they're going to lose that they've lost before it even starts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm willing to kind of allow that take back of the term, especially in terms of someone like Kyrie or LeBron or KD that are clutch in the sense that they can get a basket. Um, I think that's a fair definition of that term. Yeah, but I, I'm just, like you said, uh, opposed to the idea that because someone misses a last-second shot that they're not clutch. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, what do you got? Um, I got scrappy or feisty. Yeah. This almost always means that this is a dirty player who's white. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I would add chippy to that too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's if I Matthew Delvadova is not a good basketball player and I'm so tired of him being referred to as scrappy when he uh, is doing the same stuff that uh, what's the guy that was with the Rockets Beverly was doing and Beverly is considered this super dirty player in many ways. Yeah, and I I think I'm I was going to bring it up too but how many of sports euphemism are race-based? Yeah, it's almost all of them. Yeah, I think it's like what we talk about or what we need to talk about most when we talk about this. The two that come really close to that for me too are the idea of an athletic quarterback, mm -hmm. which almost without fail means a black quarterback. Mm -hmm. uh, and then deceptively fast, meaning it's a white guy that's actually fast. <laughs> and like as if that's like an anomaly um so i think both of those things fit really nicely in with the idea of like scrappy feisty or chippy so i kind of want your opinion to then on this um you know the we often refer to players as controversial or divisive um yeah and i wonder what you think about the the racial overtones of that uh I think it's problematic whenever it's directed towards someone like Draymond Green. Mm -hmm. um, I think even something like calling a player passionate is euphemistic in that way of mm -hmm. saying like, again, just because they're not like the class act Jordan speed that we want them to be, that we have to use these terms like they're controversial or passionate. I almost would put passionate above controversial is being like pejoratively euphemistic hmm. um so I, I always find that problematic whenever i hear that i don't i don't like it at all well it's interesting to me because i think that um it, it, i just wonder and this is you know i think part of the issue with race stuff in general is that it's so hard to pin down what exactly is a racist thing to say? Um, yeah. And so like there was, I was talking to someone this evening after a meeting I had and we were talking about racial issues and she was talking about, she was at a, a family picnic with 30 people and here comes this white guy with a dog that just kind of walks around very slowly around them for, you know, 10 minutes while letting their dog pee on stuff like five feet away from the area. And like, you know, they're seeing this one way. Um, and, and I see the same thing. It's just so hard to like, you, you can't just say, Hey, stop being racist and waiting for your dog to crap right in front of us. Exactly. Uh, 
but at the same time, like, you know, you can be pretty sure that that's what's happening in that circumstance. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. And it's, and then it becomes hard to know how to get around that. And like, we call people out every time that they use, you know, these words. Um, right. Or, or what? Because I don't think that most people know that they're using it. And then if they don't recognize that they're using it in that way, they're likely to get defensive if you do bring it up. Um, right. Like, you know, do you remember um, Aaron Kraft at Ohio State? Yes. Point guard. Um, I think like the definition of a scrappy player, right? Yeah. And people like would say that over and over again. And I like, there's just this part of me that wants to say like, you guys need to calm down. And yet I don't know how to have that conversation with someone in a way that's productive and meaningful. I had that conversation with friends and it was never productive or meaningful. <laughs> I always just lambasted how annoyed I was with the fact of people talking about Aaron Craft is the most feisty, feisty and best defender in the country. That was the most obnoxious, annoying commentary possible and lazy commentary. I think there's a part of it for me that comes down to laziness. Mm-hmm. I was like, can you not come up with something better to say about a player mm-hmm. um, that you're just relying on like the cliches that announcers have used for the last 50 years. And so phrases that date back to an era when institutional racism was lauded and accepted as like status quo. And it's fine to say things like that. Like um, let's have some production and some, editors that are running these programs and these commentaries and saying like, let's, if we can come up with some better terms for describing what Aaron Kraft is. And I think you see the same thing um, to take a more international lens in the soccer world and such. We talk about flair a whole lot and that's almost always have, has racial undertones to it as well. I mean, I remember when uh, Gilberto Silva came to Arsenal and, you know, we signed a World Cup winning Brazilian. I still love Gilberto Silva, but the guy did not play, quote unquote, play like a Brazilian. Uh, And like the commentators love to talk about that. Yeah. The one I have alongside that is natural talent. Hmm you know, is saying someone's kind of raw or they have a lot of natural talent. Mm-hmm. It's like essentially saying they didn't grow up with privilege, which often <laughs> comes right alongside the race issue. I'm saying like, well, yeah, they could be great. You know, they have a ton of natural talent, but they're kind of raw right now and not very refined. Um, mm. It makes me wonder all of this conversation about again, going back to the media. And again, I, I really hate to demonize the media because it's, uh, I think they do the best they can most of the time. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, what if we all listened to sports uh, and just talked about it with our friends instead of talking about it with, you know, having these conversations with these online and, and media personalities, how yeah. would that change how we perceive these things? Uh, yeah. Like, I think that we've been, you know, probably some of these conversations would still happen. Um, yeah. But we'd be more in control of the narrative in many ways. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I still think we can do better. 
So you just, if everybody listened to the game on mute, then we'd be fine. Precisely. <laughs> um, Let's take that back. The, the one time we should not listen to a game on mute is when Luke Walton, Mark Jackson, and Jeff Van Gundy call an NBA game together because that strikes me as the most amazing thing I would ever see in my life. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive crew. I would listen to that every time. <laughs> Oh my! Uh, I have one more I want to point out. Okay. Um, the one is referring to an athlete as a beast. Mm. I always find that really problematic, um, especially um, well, very specifically. I've heard so many announcers refer to Serena Williams as a beast, mm. and I don't know if I can articulate it fully other than to say, like, no, you can't say that. Like, that's not okay for you to say that. Um, there are so many other terms available <laughs> to describe what Serena Williams is as a tennis player, as a human being, as and as an athlete. And beast does not be need to be one of the words you use to describe her. Well, it sounds a lot like um, it's the commodification of the body taking totally. to, it, to its final place in some ways. That's exactly what it is. Hmm. So I always have a problem with that one. Yeah. The other one that I always have a problem with is uh, when people talk about high character people. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, there's racial undertones to that too, but it's almost always uh, in reference to someone who we probably really shouldn't be spending very much time talking about. But <laughs> yeah. we talk about them because they meet because them. they're a high character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But again, it's about who determines the character, and yep. uh, the white folks do, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Well, you want to hit me up with your? I think. Yeah. Wendell Berry recently said the following. Love it already. Liberal now names a lot of people who thought the election of President Obama put an end to American racism, which was kind of a good heartedness, but also a kind of silliness. Mm. So with Colin Kaepernick, I think that I think we're seeing institutional racism, purposeful discrimination, and a brand of publicly lauded racism that has not been this mainstream in some time, or at least since the Obama election, when we thought that we had turned a corner, maybe wrongly. The Jay Cutler signing and the fact that the, the fact that teams are considering Tim Tebow on top of every other piece of evidence Ooh. makes it undeniable. The argument that teams don't want to take on a distraction is not only thin, it is completely indefensible. The ownership is colluding. The ownership is pandering to a radical fan base. The NFL is pathetically absent in this conversation. The mainstream sports media is tiptoeing through the issue. Outlets like the undefeated Dave Zirin at the Nation and a few others are speaking some truth to the issue, but the majority of the voices that I've heard are being really wimpy. They're also skirting their responsibility. 
the Adam Schefters, the Mark Schleris, and the other household names at ESPN and the NFL Network are more than complicit. They are, in some cases, actively bolstering some of the most blatant, non-veiled racism and discrimination that we've seen in recent times. If the owners in the NFL are responding to what the fans want, then the implications of that are more harrowing than we think. I'm thinking that any thinking person would have to be considering boycotting the NFL this year. Indeed, we're all culpable in plenty of societal ills, but I'm willing to get on a platform on this one and say that we're all culpable in something that goes beyond the societal ill. This is indefensible and cannot be dismissed. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think we're watching what we thought was gone. And I, I think we don't know how to talk about it even. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting because it's the conversation that remains to be had is how to talk about racism um, with people who are racially insensitive who may not be racists by the strongest definition of the word. Right. Um, and I think that we're seeing that racism still exists even when there may not be any racists around. And of course there are still racists, but it's the people that uh, are in between that are perhaps even more of a problem these days. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, right. Like one of the central issues is that, just because someone is not a member of the KKK does not mean they're espousing racist things. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's a hard point to get across. I think. What well, is it's, you know, um, it's like they, you know, people want to say I'm not a racist and here's what I believe that leads you to, that shows I'm not a racist. Um, right. And it's like the conversation needs to be yes. And, um, so, okay, right. yeah. you're not a racist. Let's move on. What's you still can't do X, Y, and Z. Um, right. This is how you should be treating people. Right. Um, and I, so this is not something I, I know what I really think about. Um, and this is a topic for a larger conversation, but I do wonder um, just what we do with what seems to be the increasing number of angry white men in terms of how do we not cater to them and yet uh, be, I guess, understanding and somehow get them on the right page in the long run. Right. You're right. That is a bigger conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be in Charlottesville this week, it's all going to go down and it's probably going to get real ugly this weekend. So, yeah, it sounds like it. But in the, in, in the sports world, I, it took me a long time to think that they could actually be doing this with Kaepernick because I thought the sports was always going to be more important than the politics. Um, I think it is almost all the time, but Kaepernick has shown us where, where is too far in that world. Yeah. We've, we've seen the line. Um, it, it raises interesting questions for me too, especially, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about Harbaugh's trip to Italy with his team. Um, yeah. and it makes me wonder if Harbaugh were still at the 49ers would, would he still have a job with the 49ers? 
Right, and the reports that came out the last couple of weeks were that the other Harbaugh wanted him in Baltimore. Yeah. But Ray Lewis is speaking out against it. Uh, and apparently the owner, too, is a big wimp, and he received a bunch of letters from fans saying they didn't want him, and he's like, well, I can't go against my fans. Oh, what a cop-out. Yeah, it's so pathetic. But what do you got? All right. Well, I've got a more uplifting one here for us. So this makes like three uplifting ones in a row, which is odd, I know. but I, I know. I did kind of did a purposefully negative one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adam, Adam Hansen is one of my favorite writers in the professional cycling peloton. Not only does he love a good attack, but he has been known to occasionally steal a beer from a fan on a mountain stage. So I was rather disheartened to read that he has not been chosen to compete in the Vuelta a España later this month by his team, Lotto Sudal. This, would have been the, this will be the first time in six years that he has not been chosen and ridden to completion a grand tour. He has a remarkable run of completing 18 consecutive Grand Tours, which in the cycling world are the three-week stage races. This has left me reflecting on the accomplishment and thinking about how I think that I think that accomplishments based on longevity and consistency are the most impressive to me in some ways. I don't care for Tom Brady, but the fact that he can do what he can do at 40 is incredible. Tom Watson's continued success at the British Open later in his life was so fun. Getting 3,000 hits in baseball is among my favorite feats. My admiration for Vince Carter and Dirk Nowitzki only grows. Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak in consecutive games in baseball is just staggering to me. So I'd like to raise a toast to Adam Hansen and say that I think his accomplishment is among the most impressive in modern cycling. That makes me think of the recent NFL Hall of Fame inductees of um, Terrell Davis and Kurt Warner, who both were kind of flashes in the pan. Mm -hmm. And how several people this week have been talking about how, well, if we're just going to honor a couple seasons when people were great, then what that changes for what we value in Hall of Fames. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom Brady is, if you're valuing longevity, 50 times better than Kurt Warner. Uh, but Kurt Warner and Tom Brady are going to be in the Hall of Fame alongside each other. I think this is, um, you know, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but baseball does this perhaps better than most sports. Um, golf certainly does it well. Um, but it's just, yeah. I, I appreciate. And so, you know, the fact that basketball doesn't, you know, longevity is not a big thing in basketball. Uh, makes me really appreciate those players that can do it well. Yeah. And that's part of the yeah. cycling thing too, is that, you know, there's just so much chance and so much um, right. exhaustion that goes into it that to do these 18 in a row uh, is just amazing. Yep. I agree. Uh, and if you haven't watched the clip on YouTube, you guys should all look up uh, the there's two clips of him stealing beers from fans, uh, and they're both fantastic. It's a pretty cool thing to do in a sport. I will say that uh, when we went to the U.S. or the World Cycling Championships in Richmond, um, there was a U.S. rider in the Women's World Championship that she had done her job, uh, and so on the final lap, she wasn't with the front riders because she was just trying to finish, uh, and we were on this super steep 
climb that was at like 25%. Uh, and somebody was holding out a beer over the railing and she grabbed it and downed it. Uh, and it was just about the biggest cheer of the entire event. <laughs> yeah. that moment that was nowhere near the front of the race but it was just like this moment of humanity in these writers which i think is just it's so appreciated that's awesome well good deal you want to wrap it up there yeah sounds good all right well y'all wasted some more time with us as we uh get absolutely nowhere in solving racial issues but continue to establish that they exist uh, and that we as white men can talk about them. Um, but God, uh, that's so true. <laughs> uh, but come back next week and uh, we'll talk about something else. But in the meantime, check out Selection Day by Aravind Adiga uh, and come back to us in three weeks as we talk about it. Thanks, Carl. Sounds good. Thanks, man.